Welcome to Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. I'm your host, David Clark, and in this episode, I'm speaking with Michael Heiner, the joint MD of NetWealth, the ASX-listed investment management platform business. This is a story of entrepreneurism, of a family escaping persecution in war-torn Germany to become leaders in the establishment of international trade in Australia to places like China and Brazil. Never afraid to back themselves and take risks, the Heiner family company bought and sold the Triple M radio station for a $40 million profit, holding it for less than a year, then established one of the original mortgage funds that was ultimately sold to Mercantile Mutual, now ING. Michael and his son Matt, now 40, then established an investment superannuation platform business when Matt was age 21, at a time when only the banks competed in this space. 19 years later, net wealth is an overnight success, with a family now owning 65% of a publicly listed company, Net Wealth, that's now valued at more than $2 billion. Of course, the success we are talking about is easy, but the path was filled with a few near-death experiences as businesses changed. We discuss entrepreneurism, the investment platform industry, how people should think about selecting advisors and where they get their advice from, and the complexities of managing significant wealth within families. I should point out that I'm a client of net wealth and actually have recommended it for many of my clients, though not all. I continue to and recommend to clients that they use net wealth where it makes sense for them, but this podcast is not a recommendation of net wealth, rather an opportunity to learn from one of Australia's great entrepreneurial families. Michael, welcome to Inside the Rope. Thanks very much, David. Great to chat with you. Uh, I feel very special here that we've fil- we've recorded, I should say, many of these episodes, uh, you know, in unusual places. And I think up until now, um, uh, the, the most different was the top of the Rockefeller Center with Kathy Wood, who runs Ark Invest, and recently named one of uh, Bloomberg's fifty most influential people in the world in technology. But I think you've taken it to a next level, being here down at your facility. Uh, in Melbourne at NetWealth, and you've actually got a, a full studio. So hopefully my visitors, uh, my listeners will benefit from the uh, improved sound quality. So thank you very much. It's a great studio, but it's not uh, quite the top of the Rockefeller Center. Level nine's pretty high, but not that high. <laughs> it's very good. Michael, I thought we could maybe kick off with you giving us a bit about your background and what really shapes you and your thought and perhaps a little insight into your your sort of family business background as well. Yeah, David, uh, it's a funny thing. I've only ever worked in the family business. uh, uh, And so one of the things that I often uh, feel that I've lacked is the ability to compare what other companies have done and how they've done it. And we've really got to rely on those fantastic people that are working in this company to share their experiences uh, so that I can gain an experience of the outside world, I guess, in, in a sense. But my, uh, my background's fairly diversified. Uh, my father was uh, born in Germany, in what was eastern Germany, um, and at uh, the outbreak of war, he was arrested in England uh, as an uh, enemy alien, uh, shipped to Australia as a, a prisoner of war. Uh, when, and uh, when he was uh, in Australia, uh, they looked at the situation, they said, well, you're actually a German Jew, uh, you're really on our side. So he was uh, uh, released and uh, joined the Australian Army. Uh, so having come from a well, very wealthy background, he suddenly found himself 
in a foreign country and uh, what a great country uh, it was that he was sent to. I'm very grateful to to all of that. Um, but he arrived in a foreign country with very little language, no money, uh, no contacts uh, and no business background. Uh, so at the end of the war, he had to start up and do something uh, based on what his past experiences were. And he started up a commodity trading company uh, from nothing. And the other people that uh, joined him initially in those days were other uh, refugees that had come across to Australia in a similar way to him. Uh, so having started that, he was extremely entrepreneurial. He loved building. He loved creating. Um, the profit motive, of course, it was there, but he never really focused on that. It was more about doing fabulous new things. And he started a huge amount of the trade that Australia still today relies on. Uh, he opened up China uh, trade in 1959 uh, when things were very, very different. Uh, so the uh, steel business, the wheat business, uh, the wool business, all of that was business that he started. He started a shipping line to South America uh, because there was a market there, but there was no shipping to get there. Uh, he started shipping um, at, um, raw materials to Japan very early on when it was very, very unpopular in the early days. Um, but the problem was we were shipping raw materials to Japan and the ships were coming back empty to Australia. So he thought, what can I put on these ships to bring back to Australia? So he got the agency for Daihatsu, the motor cars, and uh, imported motor cars. Pity he didn't uh, pick a better car than that, but uh, we did have fun with one of the little sports cars for a while there. Uh, so he opened up trade throughout the world and uh, really was very much a Don Quixote uh, fighting windmills uh, wherever he found them. Uh, and he just had a passion about building that trade uh, for Australia. Um, the trading business, though, progressively led to financial services, and it is a natural progression. And there's many uh, merchant banks around mm -hmm. the world that started off as trading companies, people like Kleinwood Benson, um, who were traders and progressively became financiers. Um, and uh, we started to use the cash flows that were generated from the trading activity um, to build initially a mortgage business and then a property business. Uh, and uh, my father and I built that together. Um, he died now 40 years ago, uh, and we've really continued very strongly in, in, that, uh, in that space. Uh, so um, I've got a passion for building business. Uh, I've got a passion for seeing us growing and developing uh, and that's one of the beauties with net wealth that uh, we've actually been successful and we've also maintained the family environment where, uh, as you know, David, my son Matt uh, is extremely competent, my co-CEO, and uh, together we've, uh, we've enjoyed building what's turned out to be a very successful business. Now, if I'm right, your, your father's name was Walter. That's that right. Um, what were the biggest lessons he taught you in business? What do you think of when you think of that? Uh, I, people often talk about mentors and uh, who was your mentor, what did you learn, etc. Uh, I think, firstly, one of the things you've got to be is your own person. Never try to copy somebody else. Learn from them, but never try to actually, what would he do in this situation? I'll try and do, because you'll always get it wrong and it'll always mm. appear false. <coughs> uh, I think what I found very interesting, my father was an entrepreneur. He was always building and growing businesses. He had a managing director um, who was um, very much more conservative and much more focused on the numbers. My own views have been I wanted to be in the middle. I wanted to be 
uh, an entrepreneur growing businesses, but with a lot more focus on the financials and maintaining financial stability and governance and so on. Uh, so um, it's as much what you see that you can do better at as what you, you see that they do well. Um, he was a very strong influence on my life. We got, uh, we got on very well um, in business and out of business. So there's obviously a huge influence uh, there. But uh, I think it was just the passion for building and for growing and for involving the family in the business. Uh, uh, Dad's hobby was business, uh, and to a very large degree, that's my hobby as well. So one of the reasons I was really excited about this interview and the opportunity to speak with you, Michael, is really I see you as an entrepreneur and that entrepreneurial spirit within the family. Um, can you talk to, uh, given that lots of my clients uh, are actually from entrepreneurial backgrounds where they've built significant wealth through whatever it is and then look for people to provide wealth management services into that and diversified portfolios, etc. cetera. Um, you, I think you sell, sell yourself a little bit short in some of the uh, entrepreneurialism there and uh, you know, there have been some stunning transactions along that path. The, the, the sale of the radio station uh, to Hoyts, uh, where I think you probably invested a total of a million dollars for a return of something like $40 million over that period, um, and, and the building out and the linking in of that financial services and the original mortgage business. Can you talk a little bit about that and how that transition into what started as net wealth, I, I want to say, 18 years ago? Yep, that, that's, uh, that's exactly right. And people often talk about uh, um, net wealth as a... Uh, overnight a, a, success. Overnight success, <laughs> which uh, if uh, 18, 19 years is overnight, uh, and I must be a very young man. Um, we have done a huge number of things along the way. My early days were actually trading with my father and doing amazing transactions. Um, we were shipping uh, uh, flour from Greece to uh, to North Korea and North Vietnam in the, when they were strongly communist days. Uh, um, and I would be very much, I lived in uh, Europe for some 10 years or so and I was very much involved in the financial side there, arranging credit for countries that couldn't pay for their for their goods. Um, so I, I've had a very varied career. I guess from our trading days though, there was something that I did strongly believe in. The trading was fantastic um, and uh, we did very well at it. Two things happened though. One is the world was changing, communications were changing, um, the banking system was opening up, foreign currency, uh, currency trading was, was changing, um, suppliers and customers got together much more and they didn't need the, the middleman to the same degree. But the biggest problem I had with it was we would do a deal and we'd rub our hands and say, wasn't that good? But our expenses continued and I didn't know where the next income was coming from. Um, another deal would come along, but it was uh, transaction based. And I had very clearly in my mind that I wanted to build a business with recurring income. In the process of looking for that, we did lots of different things, uh, some of them more successful than others. And I think that's probably a bit of a mark of an entrepreneur that you actually believe in yourself sufficiently to back your ideas and, and to go with them. Um, there's nothing wrong with failing, but you want to fail fast and make sure that you can move on and, and do the next thing. You don't want to uh, blow the whole whole ship up. Um, so we've done amazing things like, as you say, the radio stations, which I 
knew nothing about and I've got no understanding of music or musicians or anything like that. But you understood um, the numbers. But I, I loved the numbers. When the finance director of this, these radio stations, which were Triple M, uh, came to me and started going through the numbers, they started talking to me. <laughs> um, and uh, so Glenn Wheatley, uh, who's a bit of a rock entrepreneur, um, uh, he was the face of the business, but, uh, but we actually owned the business. And uh, it was fantastic. But we learned a lot of lessons out of that too because, as you say, we invested a million-dollar deposit and before we could actually settle on the transaction, um, Hoyt's, uh, the cinema group at the time, came along and were desperate to buy it. Uh, So I actually structured the deal so that um, instead of paying tax on $40 million, we would have a 25% carried interest uh, in the company. That company then went out and bought as many radio assets as it could throughout the country and uh, they did so at the top prices and they believed that this is an asset that will never be repeated. We've got to buy this or it'll never be available again and that's a really good lesson. Don't go and buy something because you think it'll never happen again. Don't overpay. Be very conservative about it. Um, And so uh, debt swamped that company eventually. Um, But I've been in food processing um, um, in the UK a whole range of different uh, activities. Uh, um, printing, um, we printed, uh, we, we invented, one of our companies invented the peel and stick uh, stamps for Australia. Um, oh, okay. And we started uh, um, uh, uh, manufacturing stamps for Singapore and uh, other countries around the world. That company was eventually sold to the Singapore government. Uh, and uh, that was that was a great, great success actually uh, from a a company that we bought that was doing very badly. We merged a couple of companies and produced not only great innovation and technology, uh, but actually a great financial outcome. So there's a lot, a lot of interesting things like that. Along the way, though, one of my first jobs working with the family company, um, I, uh, I took on the role of uh, lending, and we had a small mortgage business. Um, and I started work going out and seeing all the builders and developers and building that mortgage book up from a very low base. And that became a very big part of our business. Um, and uh, we, uh, we ended up having the largest mortgage trust in Australia, um, and that formed part of Heiner Management Limited. Uh, Heiner Management also uh, was a property trust um, fund manager, and uh, Heiner Management was ultimately a listed entity, um, had about $3 billion of funds under uh, management, um, and there were some challenges uh, that were headwinds that were facing this business, and this is another important lesson uh, which I'll come back to. Uh, we were approached by a number of different parties to buy the business, uh, and we ultimately sold it to what is, excuse me, what is now uh, ING um, for, for about $115 million at, at that time. Um, the headwinds that I'm speaking of are really important. Family businesses so often believe that they've got to stick to what they're doing today. And that's the second example I've just provided in terms of commodity trading around the world was changing. Mm-hmm. I don't think we moved quickly enough there. We were reactionary rather than anticipating what was happening. Uh, but in the property trust area, there were some real challenges. And in fact, in years later, um, a lot of businesses blew up in that area and uh, lost a lot of money. So family businesses often think, oh, this is what dad did, this is what the family's been in, I've got to keep on and on and on. You have to be quite hard about it and say, is there a future to this business? Is, 
is there a positive outcome here? Because if there's not, change direction and be, be agile. And that's really important. And that's one of the beauties of NetWealth. We look at NetWealth every day and say, what are the threats? What are the challenges? What are the opportunities? Is there a future in this business? And we're really, really positive about it. And we're seeing a lot of the changes that are occurring now in the market being very supportive of our business model. But it is really important for people to assess their business and not have emotion about it, but make good business decisions about it. Um, so um, we built that business uh, and sold it. The opportunity there was there. Uh, we took advantage of it. I wasn't looking to cash out and retire. Um, so for two weeks, uh, I sat at home thinking about what we would do and uh, making a few investments. Um, and we settled on, uh, on starting up a platform business, which at the time was probably very ambitious, uh, but I didn't realize it was as ambitious as it turned out to be. Um, it cost many times uh, what I had anticipated it would cost, and it took a lot longer to get to profitability than, than we had imagined. Um, the reason for the platform business, it's something that we'd looked at previously in the Heiner management uh, times, but we said, no, that's not our core business. Our core business is mortgage lending and, and property trusts, um, and that's what we want to do. Um, and you start to diversify too much, you lose focus. Um, so platform business was just starting in Australia at that time, um, at the end of uh, the 90s, um, and it wasn't appropriate. When I uh, was suddenly sitting there looking at what opportunities do exist, platform business came to mind again, and I saw great opportunities and, and great challenges and, and great potential in, in starting that business. Um, as I say, I didn't know it would be quite so hard to, uh, to make it successful. And once you have success, then success builds on success. And, and uh, if you keep your eye on the business, do the right thing all the time, it, it can be very, very rewarding. Was any of that demand or decision to go into that the rap business driven by your own need? Was this a situation you've talked about your love for the numbers and wanting to have control and governance um, and understand and understand the numbers? Did you see was one of the driving motives in that there was nothing on the market or no system available to manage your own wealth that you'd accumulated in a way that you could make good decisions and understand what was going on? Um, the answer should be yes, but it's no. Okay. Um, the things that appealed to me particularly and why I was very attracted to it was it was a new industry in Australia. Um, it was only fledgling. Um, my son Matt and I used to have to climb under advisors' desks to plug into the phone line to actually connect to the internet. Uh, you know, we're not talking that long ago anymore. Um, the things that attracted me to this particular part was I love financial services. Um, the numbers do appeal to me. Um, I had worked with financial advisors and intermediaries and uh, professionals for a long time and had a good understanding of their needs and, uh, and the people in the industry. Um, and I could see that technology was going to be a real driving factor here. And I love my gadgets and I love my technology. Um, and it brought all of those elements together. Um, I also believe that it could be a profitable business um, and that's always important when you're looking at business. You can't just have a passion that isn't going to actually um, be profitable. The profitability allows us to keep investing in the business, in people. And I take a great pride in the fact that we've got 250 plus staff uh, that really enjoy working here and make a significant contribution. Um, but all of those elements came together 
and a platform business met met my objectives of what I wanted to do in life. If we could maybe just back up a little bit for a lot of our listeners, um, I think it's worth defining what a platform business is because a lot of them will have be clients of platform businesses, but not really have dug into the weeds on it in that it may be something their accountant or their advisor may be using or even white labeling and they may believe that's the technology of whichever investment solution they're using. So maybe if you could just maybe quickly touch on the point uh, for, for the listeners. What, what is a platform? What is a wrap account? Yeah. Uh, David, the first point I would make is we don't provide investment advice. That's your job. Um, we leave that to the professionals, but we we facilitate the transacting, the reporting, uh, the um, holding of assets so that the client can go to one place and see all of their assets, see their performance, um, work with the advisor in devi- devising a strategy for their future financial needs. Um, the platform basically is a, um, is a single spot accessible on the web where you can have all your assets there. You can buy and sell assets, whether it be Australian shares, international shares, invest in your term deposits, uh, invest in managed funds, in managed accounts and so on. Um, and you can buy and sell when you want through this one portal. You can then look at your performance, you can look at your profits, your losses, your transacting, um, you can have your superannuation in there and meet all of your superannuation requirements. So it's a tool to help the client and the advisor manage their financial affairs without all the paperwork that is so often needed. There is nothing worse than having a pile of paper and trying to track where your investments are and what the investment performance is and who's holding this share and so on. So the platform is an administration tool. It's, it's almost an accounting uh, software plus a whole lot more bells and whistles. It allows you to have regular investments. It allows you to have regular withdrawals and pension payments. Uh, you can set your cash levels. You can use it as a cash account and pay your bills from, from, the, uh, from the platform. You can be pay and so on. So you should be able to use the NetWealth Wrap platform for all of your financial management, but not the decision-making about what to buy and what to sell. We just want to make sure you have the broadest possible selection of assets uh, to meet your needs. And if you look globally um, at the market, where I'd probably pin you as a market leader in Australia, having entered the market competing against bank-owned and product-provided solutions, and still pretty much that's still, you know, the dominant players are bank providers. If you look globally, are there any trends that you see um, coming down the, the pipe that are likely to be adopted in Australia? Or do you think Australia is out in front um, and leading the way in this area? I think in many ways Australia has the best platform uh, business. In other countries, in America, for example, it's very fragmented and each part of the platform is provided by a different provider, so you don't actually have one party that you're dealing with. Where we see our excellence um, is when you get on the uh, website, you want to be able to easily do what it is you're trying to do. You need to be able to navigate around easily and to identify how to do things. So user experience and user functionality are absolutely critical. All of the functionality that we have there, and we continue to build more functionality in, is really important. But if it's hard to use, um, that's not going going to be useful to people. The other thing is that it is still very much an intensive 
administration process and it does need people processing things and, and acting on it. Um, and it's really important that we as an organisation provide a very high level of, of administration excellence. It's not a question of we'll get back to you in five days, we'll, we'll respond to your queries within X period. It's got to be immediate, it's got to be a good service and that's for the client themselves uh, and for you, their advisor and, uh, and professional. So the sort of things that we're focused on is functionality, which continues to expand, product range so that investors uh, can have a very wide selection of the best products to meet their financial objectives, um, excellence of service and administration, um, and we've got to make sure that the, the system works smoothly and easily and effectively all the time. How do you keep the company a day one company, as Jeff Bezos would talk about, in terms of, you know, I've heard you talk about being, you know, bureaucracy and uh, layers of management and size. And I'd, I'd say a lot of people say you're doing so well because you focus in one area um, and you've been nimble. But how do you ensure now that you're 250 people and your platform's got, I want to say, around 20 billion under management or advice? How do you ensure that everything is day one in terms of that customer service thinking and ethos and culture? Warren Buffett has, uh, I believe, said A plus B equals C, and that's arrogance plus bureaucracy um, and complacency equals decay. And I'm really focused on that all the time. We just can't allow the bureaucracy to grow. We are in a highly regulated industry, so you do have to have a lot of process, and you do have to have a lot of controls, and balancing that is always really important. I think the fact that um, the senior management, uh, myself, Matt, as well as the other senior executives, are all shareholders, major shareholders, uh, in the company is really important because we have a common interest in, in the outcome. and. You won't succeed if you don't look after your customers and if you don't provide a, a good service. Um, I think the fact that we founded the company and we continue to manage the company means there's a clear focus on the on the strategy and it's not each time a new CEO comes in that strategies are changing. It's not People like business banking is a bigger revenue line to your business as it in with many of the banks and you've seen the change in focus. It, exactly. Um, I think it's also being very clear about what is our business and we get asked very often, are you going to go overseas? Are you going to add other products? Are you going to become mortgage lenders? Whatever. I think it's really important to focus on one product and be excellent at that rather than being a jack of all trades and doing them badly. And I think that's what happened to the banks. The banks also had it very easy and the complacency and the arrogance uh, certainly grew there which meant they stopped investing in their service, they stopped investing in their administration, they stopped investing in their technology, and all of that has led them to have now inferior products uh, that clients are moving away from in droves. So it's actually being with the team, working with the team, being involved with all aspects of the business that allows us to keep it agile and keep it keep it fresh all the time. Um, I think that... Uh, um, the other thing that's really important in keeping the culture at NetWealth is the fact that our senior executives are all hands-on. We don't have managers who are apparently just good at managing people and we move them to different places. 
the head of IT is an expert in all fields of IT. The head of product is an expert in all of those things. Um, the head of compliance understands our business uh, and compliance and governance and, and rules and regulations. So I think the fact that the people running the business are experts in their field is really important and I think that's lacking in a lot of other organisations. So all of that is really important. The other thing is that, for example, our head of uh, investor services um, has been with us for 15 years, a week or two ago, um, and when we were very much smaller, and she totally and absolutely understands the service culture of this organisation and imparts that to all of her team leaders who imparted beyond that. So it is it is something that everyone's aware of and, and lives by that standard. And, and the fact that you've got so much addressable market and runway in front of you allows you to stay very focused on that niche, which is good. If I could ask you maybe, just turning a little bit back to sort of the entrepreneurial background and your history as a businessman and entrepreneur, we've seen many entrepreneurs out of coal industry and similar where they've had a good run, they've done a few transactions and businesses, but there almost seems to be an implicit um, need to keep doubling up or putting all the chips in. I've heard you define, you've alluded to it before, about an entrepreneur and someone who's willing to commit and almost commit everything to that vision. How have you thought about risk and managing risk in those situations, i.e. along this journey, how much have you been prepared to bet in each separate venture you've gone into? Um, I'd like to say that it was all very well calculated and planned out and so on. Um, that when we started NetWealth, I believed that it would cost us $5 million to establish it. Um, other groups have spent billions of dollars to mm. achieve what we currently have. Um, well, the $5 million was optimistic and it got to $10 million and it got to $15 million and it got to $20 million. Um, and, and you're still building. And, and we're still building and still believing in ourselves. And that's one of the big challenges, I think. Do I believe enough in it? Um, when do I actually cut my losses and say, that was a bad idea, let's move on to the next thing? And I think that's, that's the difference between an, an entrep- a successful entrepreneur and somebody that has a good idea but isn't prepared to, to back it fully. Um, People come along and say, I've got a great idea, but people won't back me. They won't give me the money. Well, you've just got to get through that uh, barrier. You've got to actually find the way to do it. Now, we were fortunate that we had had a successful business and we were able to generate uh, uh, cash to continue to invest in the business. I also am not a believer in getting other parties to invest in my ideas and my entrepreneurship. I, I would much prefer that I put my own money in, I risk my own money, and if I'm successful, that's great. Uh, and if I'm unsuccessful, I carry the can. Uh, I really am not a great fan of the modern thing where people go out and have Series A raising, Series B raising, Series C, and they mm. end up with a big shareholding where everyone else is carrying the risk. And I just think it's it's a bad, bad philosophy and it's a bad way and it will end in tears. But it's uh, for me at least, it's really important. Um, I'll back myself. I might get it very wrong. Um, but I can only blame one person and there's only one person that actually loses. Uh, On that front though, um, something that's given me great pleasure um, here at NetWealth is that we were able to give um, some of our early supporters in the industry and uh, many of our staff 
some shares which appeared to be worthless for a, a long time. And uh, Macquarie Bank used to be called the Millionaire's Factory. And I'm absolutely delighted that so many people um, have made a large amount of money as a result of our listing on the stock exchange uh, getting on for two years ago. And there's people in the organisation uh, that have come out of it really positively um, and they can't get over it and it's changed their lives. And uh, that's been fantastic for me, where without asking them to put up money, they've actually benefited because of their contribution. And that's one of the most satisfying things that I've had out of the, out of the success of NetWealth. Michael, you're in a unique position here at NetWealth and your access to advice market. And we've also seen a lot come out of the Banking Royal Commission, um, which would suggest people need to pay a lot of attention to where they're getting their advice from and their financial advice. What words of advice would you have for high net worth individuals and families when seeking advice in terms of the type of organisations they should be looking for and characteristics given your experience? Yeah, I, I think that uh, you have to look very carefully at the nature of the organisation and then at the people that are in that organisation. Um, I think that that vested interest, the advisors who are providing that advice, being the owners of the business, uh, is a really important thing, just as we have built this business as being owners and, and we really see it as our business. So that's really important. I think that you need to ensure that the advisors that you have are experienced, um, have um, really good understanding of the financial markets that they work in, and that they're not just providing the same advice to every individual that comes along. It's got to be personalised advice. You want value add from those people uh, in a whole range of, of different ways. But um, I think the nature of the organisation, the ownership of the organisation, the culture of the organisation, um, and the experience uh, of those people uh, is really important. Personally, I wouldn't want to go to an organisation uh, where they've got hundreds of advisors, um, all, all just as a sausage factory. It's, mm. got to, it's got to be individual to you. And you've got to have a lot of faith and confidence in your advisor. And a financial advisor is not just there to pick good investments for you. It's a holistic advice that you've got to be looking for. It's actually a life partner that is looking hand in hand with the client to a long-term and goals-orientated uh, outcome. So um, it is challenging um, and you need to talk to people and find that, that group. And I think that CODA is one of the new t style of uh, advisors that is putting together all of the elements that are so important today uh, for clients. And that is the direction that we've now got to go as an industry um, and has been highlighted by the Royal Commission. Michael, many of our clients um, grapple with and deal with intergenerational wealth management. Um, having been successful entrepreneurs and built businesses in certain areas, um, it occurs to me you have a lot of experience in this area, having built the business with your father in many incarnations, and now, as you mentioned, for the last 18 years, building net wealth um, with Matt. Um, <clears throat> how does that play out, and what sort of advice can you give people when they're thinking about, you know, intergenerational wealth and just teaching and dealing with that. I, I've heard you make the comment before, you know, you don't really understand that the fire's hot until you burn your hand in it. So, you know, I know with my son and, 
my daughter and my children, we want to educate them, um, but you know, we want to give some safe guidelines around this that we don't want them to burn their hands so badly that they're, it's uh, irreparable. What, what sort of advice can you give to our listeners who are dealing with that sort of uh, teaching aspect intergenerational wealth management piece? Yeah, um, when Matt first joined me when we were setting up this company, um, some days he would say, I'm already 21, and other <laughs> days he would say, I'm only 21. Uh, so it depended on the occasion. And at that time, his knowledge and experience was limited. And so it was important for me to ensure that he didn't go beyond his capability in making decisions or the things that he was doing, but equally importantly, to encourage him to keep on growing. So most fathers have problems letting go and they've got to prove constantly that they're better and that's where a lot of family relationships break down. It's really important to allow one's children to grow and to create their own world without restricting them overly, but trying to ensure that they're not going beyond their capability. And over time, Matt, for example, his knowledge, his experience, his capability just shone through. It used to be that he would say, I want to go and visit, go to Sydney and on this trip, and it would be a question. Now I find out uh, afterwards, of course, that he's done this and that, and various deals have been uh, consummated. So I think the first thing is a father particularly needs to be able to let go and not control, and that's quite challenging. Um, there, there can be a, uh, a thing called relevance deprivation. You know, I'm not important anymore. So make sure that you give the young kids who are the future the, the opportunity. In terms of wealth, uh, I think it's really important that they um, manage their own wealth and they learn and experience that. Um, you can give them guidance. Um, I think it's important to have a transfer of wealth if it's available. If you're fortunate enough to have uh, sufficient wealth to meet your needs, make sure the kids have some of that wealth during your lifetime as a parent so that you can give them ongoing guidance. Uh, so don't wait till you're dead where they can uh, then inherit a lot of money and make all the mistakes learning about it at that time. Um, the bigger issue, and we're fortunate that we have a operating business and that's our key focus and our investments outside of that are relatively limited. Um, but if somebody has a, um, a, a um, event, the sale of a business and a large amount of money that suddenly appears, that becomes a bigger challenge. How do I deal with that? How do we as a family um, look at that wealth? What is its meaning to us? What are we trying to achieve? And it's really important, again, for the family to sit down, discuss with one another openly, what are our objectives? Is it, does everybody go away with a share of the money? Do we invest collectively? Um, do we, what's, what's our uh, philanthropic ambitions? So it's more of a discussion as opposed to the patriarch sitting there saying, this is the rule. Um, I think it's also very interesting. Uh, my brother and I um, were joined at the hip for a very long time. And I always believed that there was more power, uh, more strength in sticking together. And he came to me one day and said, look, I've got two daughters, you've got two sons. My daughters are not involved in the business. I'm not involved in the business. 
um, I think we should separate our assets. And at first I thought, oh, that's not a great idea. Um, and progressively we did do that because that was his desire. And I must say that makes good sense because it's hard enough for brothers to work together. It gets more difficult when cousins are trying to work together. So as, as, it gets, as the family ownership broadens out to more and more people, it becomes quite a challenge. So you have to think about that as well on the way through. There's no right and wrong answer. It's just issues that people should be thinking about um, because money can cause more problems within a family than having no money. And what a shame that is when people have had the success, they've worked hard all their lives, uh, they've generated substantial amounts of money, and then the family disintegrates because of that. So it's really important, and I think that's, again, an area where um, you can help clients work through these issues, identify the sort of issues, and help them to make the decisions about what's important to them in their lives. Terrific. Michael, I think that's a fantastic uh, uh, place to, to finish the podcast. Thank you very much for joining me today. Congratulations to yourself and Matt uh, and your team on the success that Net Wealth is, and I can see it really well positioned in growth going forward. Thank you very much. Thanks, David. Great to chat with you. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com. Any views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.